0: Well, Mark Hitchcock shares this true story. Oklahoma is mainly known for football and for tornadoes. And a few years ago, there was a popular movie titled Twister, and the climax of the movie focused on a group of Oklahoma storm chasers who were pursuing an F5 tornado a tornado with winds from 261 miles per hour all the way to 316 miles per hour. That's an F5. A few years after this movie came out, though, Oklahoma actually experienced a very true, terrible twister, just like the movie, except worse. The news on May third, 1999 captured people's attention for over four hours because at that moment, storm chasers had located a fairly strong and large tornado in southwest Oklahoma. But unlike most twisters, however, this tornado did not break up. It didn't weaken. It got stronger. It didn't recede back into the clouds. It actually stayed alive for hours. Over the next four hours, this routine tornado metastasized into a monster without equal. It was a meteorologist's worst nightmare, an F5 tornado, the base of which was half a mile wide. In fact, it held together for that extended period of time, and worst of all, it hit a major population area of Oklahoma. The cyclone effortlessly cut a devastating 60-mile swath, through town after town, through neighborhood after neighborhood, and when the steamroller finally ran out of energy, it had totally destroyed 1,500 homes, it had severely damaged 8,000 homes, and it had killed actually 44 people. After the storm, the meteorologist determined that the wind speed generated by this tornado had peaked, are you ready for this, at 318 miles per hour. The wind speed was the strongest winds that have ever been recorded on planet Earth. The storm was in a category all its own. They were actually seriously considering calling it an F6, a whole new category of disaster. The day after the tornado, the news crews were out flying around showing aerial views of the damaged areas, The scenes were indescribable. It looked like an atomic weapon had gone off. If there was a tree standing, it had no bark on it. It had no leaves on it. It was completely ripped free. The ground was absolutely bare, and the reason for it is all the grass. Every single blade had been sucked up into the tornado. That's the kind of force it had. And the reason I share that with you is that that kind of destruction is nothing compare to the destruction that is planned in the coming seven-year tribulation. That's just a taste. What God has in mind goes beyond F6. It is going to be an incredible, incredible act that God is going to unlash and unleash his own twister on this earth. An F10 of God's wrathful judgment. God's word describes an unparalleled time. There's nothing that can compare with this. You can add up all the great disasters on planet Earth and they won't even come close to what is going to befall this planet in this seven-year period. The Word of God tells us that man will always have trouble, but this is a time of concentrated tribulation unlike anything that has ever come before or ever will again. It is 2,520 days long It is called Daniel's 70th week, Jacob's Trouble. It is the day of distress, the day of desolation, the day of vengeance, and the day of alarm and destruction. It is there to judge Israel and also all of mankind and every nation. The Bible uses words like wrath, judgment, indignation, trial, trouble, destruction, darkness, desolation, overturning, and punishment to describe this seven-year future outpouring of judgment and expression of God's wrath Jesus himself made certain that you would know that there would be no comparison he says in Matthew chapter 24 verse 21 he says this there will be a great tribulation he says it's coming such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever shall It is described all throughout the Old Testament. This is not just a momentary description, one place in the New. It's all throughout the Old. It's all throughout the New Testament. And its description, though, is best detailed in the book of Revelation. Last week, if you were here, we studied the seal and trumpet judgments. And that was Revelation chapter 1 through 10. And this week, we're going to start in our study in Revelation chapter 11. So please, if you have your Bible open to Revelation chapter 11, like waves of an incoming tide. The seals that we looked at last time take you from the beginning of the tribulation all the way to the end of the tribulation. And then the trumpets continue, probably starting somewhere in the middle, around three and a half years into the tribulation, all the way to the end. And then as we pick up where we left off last time in Revelation chapter 11, the final judgment of the bowls are about to begin And that signifies the bowls, the darkest chapter of all of human history. There will be nothing worse than the outpouring of the bowls. So if you're not there already, please turn to Revelation chapter 11. If you're new with us today, we're in the midst of a series on what is to come. It's eschatology. We're studying the end times and what the Bible has to say. We're taking the Bible in a normal, literal sense. We're not changing our hermeneutic and way we look at the Bible because it's a prophetic passage we're saying, no, 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 what did he mean? And you're going to see that both in the Old and the New Testament, there is predicted a seven-year coming tribulation. It's very clear and that God is going to pour out his wrath. And as he does, he's going to teach you and teach me about the nature of man, the nature of mankind, humankind, what we're really like. He's going to teach you also and expose the work of the enemy, Satan, and his minions. And he's also going to expose the incredible, amazing character of God himself. You're going to see things about God that you didn't see otherwise. In fact, learning about the tribulation will help you see how God is orchestrating his plan right now to bring about this coming judgment right now in our current day. He's bringing this about. He's working this world so it will accomplish that. Our passion to share the gospel is going to get intensified as we read about what is coming upon the lost world, upon those who we know and we love who do not know Jesus Christ, that they're going to face this tribulation and potentially hell forever unless they repent of their sin and put their faith completely in Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ will use the tribulation to purge his nation of Israel, and to bring that Jewish nation to saving faith in Jesus Christ as their one true Messiah. That will happen during the tribulation. Christ will punish the Gentile nations and all unbelievers for their increasing rebellion to him, manifesting sin and manifesting greater levels of wickedness. And during the tribulation, Christ will prove his power, and he will vindicate his reputation Uh, through the course of judgment, and Christ will use this time to save millions of people who have yet to hear of the gospel. So in the midst of this judgment, which the book of Revelation describes as being outpoured on the earth, there are moments, though, of grace, moments of pause. When you read the book of Revelation, there's windows of grace or pictures of Christ, worthiness to remind us that Christ is just in His outpouring of His wrath against humanity. You say, how could He be just? Because Jesus Christ, on the cross, took all of God's wrath for your sin upon Himself. All the wrath that you deserve for an eternity fell on Jesus Christ, on your behalf as His children, and therefore He is just and right. In the midst of judgment, you will also find His grace, and you will also find salvation. So in chapter 11, we get another look at God's grace and understand with the two witnesses, which is one of my favorite parts. Hopefully you're in chapter 11. Some say these two witnesses are Elijah and Enoch because they didn't die yet. And so now they get their opportunity to physically die. Others say it's Moses and Elijah since the ministry of the two witnesses is most like them. We don't know. I'm actually personally, and this is true, I'm not making this up. This is not humor for me. My mysterious lineage, I'm hoping that that allows me to be one of them, okay? That I'm somehow a Jew, and God knows, and that I could be one of these guys. For two reasons. You know why? Wouldn't you like to be in the Bible? God's Word. Wouldn't you like to be one of the characters? that? Come on, wouldn't you like to be? Maybe you wouldn't. I would. I studied the Bible all the time. Man, I'd love to be that guy. Secondly, there's another reason. I like to toast those who reject Jesus Christ. You know what I'm saying? Do you ever get to that point where you're kind of fed up and, All those who disagree with the Bible, you know, about Christ, then all of a sudden all you have to do is go, ha, and they're gone. (laughs) I love that. And remember the 144,000 who preached the gospel from the midpoint of the tribulation all the way to the end? We talked about them last week. Who converted them? The two witnesses. How do you get saved? Faith in Christ, turn from your sin and repentance. Uh, You're born again internally, so you want to follow Christ. But how do you hear? Well, how do you hear as a preacher? Well, who are the preachers? The two witnesses. In chapter 11, verse 3, it tells us they're given three and a half years to minister in the first half of the tribulation. See, when the church is taken out, who's left to share the gospel? The answer is, after the rapture, no one's left. All the believers are gone. So God leaves this planet without a witness? Hardly. He uses the two witnesses to reach the 144,000, and those 144,000 will reach multitudes on this planet. The people of this world, though, they hate these two witnesses. The media hate these two witnesses. The political leaders hate these two witnesses. Because now with the church out of the way, there's this new age, you know, where everything blends together. There's no right, there's no wrong. But these two are just reminders of an unpleasant past, of God's character, of God's morality, of truth and error, And of the truth that is most offensive, and that is that there is only one way of salvation. And no one can stop them. No one. If leaders or others try to harm these two, read what happens to them in verse 5, chapter 11. If anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, they must be killed. Ha! And you're roasted. Don't you love that? Man. Man your antagonistic neighbor, your Christ-hating fellow employee, that Bible-bashing teacher students that you have, wailing on Christians, promoting evolution, and you politely stand for the truth, which he responds by mocking you in your faith, so you just go, ha, and they're gone. I love that. Verse 6 tells us, though, they have the power to also control the weather. They can also produce plagues. So can you imagine the news media covering these two in that first three and a half years? They're going to be on the news. Everybody's going to know about them. They're going to be newsworthy, the tyrannical two witnesses. You know, they hit San Francisco. They made the bay turn to blood. They lifted the evening fog. And then when the leaders try to arrest them, they just go up and smoke. What are we going to do about these guys? I mean, this is incredible. Finally, though, verse 7, take a look. The beast, the Antichrist himself will kill them in Jerusalem. And authorities will leave their dead bodies in the streets for three and a half days. Wow, this is modern times. You leave bodies out there. And the whole world sees them. It must be the internet, social media, television, whatever. And in verse 10, the world is so excited and glad that these two are dead, they rejoice and give each other gifts like it's Christmas. Can you believe that? Happy Dead Witnesses Day. Here's your gift. Unbelievable. You can hear the reporter. Well, they're finally dead. They've been laying there for three and a half days. And then suddenly, while they're reporting this, verse 11 says they stand to their feet. I'd like to see that on instant replay, wouldn't you? And a voice from heaven will say, come up here, and they'll go. I mean, the world's going to freak out. And it actually, terror, it says, grips the entire world. Why? Because they know that this is God, that this is Christ, that their message was true, and they're still going to fight it. They're still going to defy against it. But listen, your God will never, ever be without a witness. Never, ever be without a witness. So after that interlude of grace and hope, uh, the seventh trumpet will blow, and when it does, it will signal the finale. The finale. Take a look at chapter 11, verse 15. Chapter 11, verse 15 says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven and loud crows above, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Loud voices in heaven will shout, It's over, it's finished. The title deed of the earth is finally Christ. He comes to set up his kingdom And the seventh trumpet takes you all the way to the end of the tribulation. Again, the seals take you all the way to the end of the tribulation. Then it goes back with the trumpets, not all the way to the beginning. And then they take you all the way to the end. And that's the same thing with the bowls. So we get this little interlude now again in chapter 12. Chapter 12 picks up more details. This chapter is a review to tell you why Satan does what Satan does. It's to tell you what's really going on behind the scenes. And what's going on is that Satan hates the truth. Satan hates the church. Satan hates God's people, Israel. Satan hates anybody who is loyal to Jesus Christ, who loves Jesus Christ. And therefore, he's always attacking Israel, always attacking the Messiah, always attacking the people of God. In chapter 2, it tells you Satan has always warred against God's people. The woman is Israel. The child is Christ. The dragon is Satan who is always attacking the child born of the woman. And then verse 7 tells you that there is a war in heaven. It's the angels, the holy angels, versus the fallen angels, the demons. Guess who wins? It's the holy angels. And they win. They cast Satan and all his followers, the demons, out of heaven to the earth. And this should shock you, the reader. This should shock you. You've got to picture this. All the demons that were locked up from their violation in the Old Testament and they were in the pit have already been released. We studied that last week. And then all those who normally function on this planet are still here. And then add to that now, now all those who were causing conflict in heaven are now all cast to earth. All the demons are now on planet earth. All of them. And when Satan fell, one-third of the angels fell with him. We don't know what that number is, but they all attack this planet. They're not interested in the environment, friends. They're interested in attacking people. They hate people. And during the tribulation, especially the last half, can you imagine that? I believe the Lord is punishing them and judging them as he judges this earth. And he's also proving his character. Remember, they rebelled against the character of God in absolute perfection. They rebelled. And now they're seeing the actual foolishness of their rebellion as it's lived out on planet earth and if you think that's bad look at chapter 13 it gives you more details about the Antichrist this is the one who's called the beast he's called the man of sin he's called the vile one he's called the wicked one in the scriptures what's he like he is not dressed up with a pitchfork and red pajamas that's foolishness he is a man of high intelligence with incredible speaking ability He has some crafty political talents, a strong physical appearance, military genius, morally corrupt, materialistic, a blasphemer, motivated by selfish ambition. He functions against all law, anything that is with God's character, he is against. He tries to change prophecy, he tries to change history, and he substitutes himself for God. That's what's driving him. Read about him, if you would, in chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Let me read it out loud while you read silently. And it says in verse 4, And they worshipped the dragon, that's Satan, because he gave authority to the beast, the Antichrist. And they worshipped the beast, saying, "Who is like the beast? And who was able to wage war with him? Nobody. And there was given to him the beast a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months that was given to him, that's three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and every people and every tongue and every nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. And everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Listen. To complete this demonic trinity, you've got Satan who's trying to pretend to be God the Father... You've got the Antichrist who's pretending to be God the Son. And now as verse, chapter 13 continues, you have a false prophet who is functioning like the Holy Spirit. And he's described in chapter 13, verse 11 to the end. And I want you to read this with me silently as I read it aloud because it's very descriptive of what's going to happen during the tribulation. And it says, And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercised all authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, the Antichrist, whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down of the heaven to the earth in the presence of men. They all see it. And he declares to those who dwell on the earth because of the signs in which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling them who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast. And he had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And there is given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. So that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free man and the slave, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead... And he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark. Either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man. And his number is 666. His job is to get everyone to worship the Antichrist. That's his job. So he performs deceptive signs. And he performs deceptive wonders and he builds a statue to the beast and makes it come alive that's either demonically or electronically in some manner and as a result under the influence of demons the world population will worship the antichrist and it will be so bad that every individual on the planet could potentially be a raving demon-possessed maniac cutting themselves cutting their bodies foaming at the mouth and Satan will finally have, at this point, what he has wanted from the very beginning. What has he wanted? Control of everyone. What has he wanted? Everything focused on him. What has he wanted? Everyone worshiping him. So with the demons everywhere, and demon-possessed people everywhere, listen, when you become a Christian during the tribulation, there is no place to hide. You become a Christian, and you will be discovered. Demon-possessed people, you go overseas, they know who Christians are. They will recognize who you are. And in verse 16 and 17, in order to survive, everyone must receive an external mark. In order to buy and to sell, you say, Chris, what is the external mark? It's the vaccine, friends. It's the vaccine. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. No, it's not the vaccine. It's the other V, the Visa card. That's what it. No, it isn't. It isn't. The number is 666. What does that mean? Well, man can never get to 7, which is the number of God's perfection. He can only 666. Uh, People in many, many different lines of thought and theology try to make 666 spell out a name. Don't do that. It works for Pat Levis. It does. It works for Nigel Shaler. It does. So don't do that. They're not the beast. Trust me. But if we live in a cashless society... You know, to keep you from buying and selling, you just remove your number and you starve. Well, you, the problem is you can lose a credit card, right? So what do you do? You get a laser tattoo on your right wrist here or on your forehead. You say, why those places? Because in a cold climate, those are the easily accessible ones. And therefore, then the Antichrist then controls everyone. You cannot eat unless you get the mark of the beast. And understand you'll no longer run into problems as long as you get the little tattoo or the little mark of the beast unless you love Jesus Christ and then you can't. And as a result, the Antichrist will control the entire world. Listen, let me make something, just one practical application here. You don't have to be in the tribulation to be manipulated by Satan. You don't have to live during the tribulation To be a pawn of the enemy. All you have to do. Right now. As even a believer. To be a pawn in the enemy. Is to live by fear. Just live by fear. This is what is going on in our world right now. And we believers must rise above it. We cannot live by fear. We live by truth. Can I hear an amen to that? And we need to garner our emotions. And we need to be careful what we listen to because we need to live by the truth of God's Word and not by fear and not by lies. Don't do it because then you become a pawn for the enemy. The Christian who doesn't fear death and the Christian who trusts, trusts and loving Heavenly Father for His safety, for His spouse, for His children and grandchildren ...is unstoppable. Do not live by fear. Do not do it. Because you're then a pawn of the enemy. So, that number 666, you're not going to get that. But in chapter 14, it gives you various pictures from heaven and earth. But the most graphic is the tribulational holocaust... ...concluding in the wars of Armageddon. Verse 14, not merely one battle... But a series of wars, and it's described like a sharp sickle. Some of you don't know what a sickle is. It's a long shaft. It has two handles on it, and it has an incredibly curved blade in the first century. And they would use it to mow down wheat. And that's the picture of the Battle of Armageddon, how it's going to just wipe out people. And like like you're almost harvesting wheat And understand it's going to mow people down, giving us a look at the sixth trumpet. These wars are best summarized. Take a look at verse 20 of Revelation 14. Take a look at it. And it says there, and the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress, very graphic there, up to the horse's bridle, five feet high or so, a huge effect for a distance of more than 200 miles. It is felt the entire length of the entire nation of Israel. This is an incredible event. God's going to trample out his judgment. If you die in martyrdom as a Christian, you've chosen the better path than to go through what's going to be happening on planet Earth. In chapter 15, it prepares us for chapter 16, which lists the last seven bowl judgments. These are the last series of judgments, like a rapid-fire machine gun in succession. These bowl. judgments, or vile judgments are all at the very end of the tribulation. And according to verse 1, take a look at verse 1 of chapter 16, they finish or they fill out the wrath of God. They finish it. This is God's final outpouring. The first bowl is in verses 1 and 2 will be cancerous sores and the loss of health for all of mankind. Every single person will be very unhealthy and on the verge of dying. The second bowl will be verse 3 will be the death of all marine life You will not see the surface of the water anymore. It will just be a gigantic mat of dead carcasses. And the third bowl will be verses 4 through 7 is the loss of all fresh water. That is troublesome. The fourth bowl in verses 8 and 9 is the sun which will be scorching you to the point where men will burn with fire. And yet they will continue. The text tells us to curse God. They will continue to defy him. They will not repent even though they know it's him. They know it's God. They know that it's Christ. They know that he's true. But they will not repent. That's human nature. The fifth bowl, verses 10 and 11, men will be in complete darkness after the scorch with heat from the bowl number four. And it will be so dark that men will trip and suffer injury. And then the sixth bowl in verses 12 to 16 is the further conquest by the demon-possessed army from the east that we talked about last week. And the seventh bowl is the Armageddon Wars. The Armageddon Wars, the final batters. I've been there. Many of you have been to Israel, have been there. You oversaw the Valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, Armageddon, from Megiddo. Napoleon actually saw this incredibly flat area surrounded by hills. It's gigantic. It's triangular. And he said, this is the greatest battlefield I have ever seen. It will be an incredible battle and battles that will occur in this particular region of Israel. It is right in the center of Israel and, little known fact, the greatest, largest military airport in Israel is underground and it's right smack dab in the middle of the valley of Megiddo. Read chapter 16, verses 13 and 14 and see what the unholy trinity want to do. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist out of the mouth of the false prophet, These unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs, they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. John is describing the unholy trinity moving among the great empires of the world together for the final battles against one another. They are setting up this war. They want this war. They want people killing and butchering each other. Armageddon is a series of battles, a war at the seven-year end. Listen, Satan is called a murderer from the beginning. He wants to destroy life. He loves destroying life, and this is what he wants to do. And the kings of the south and the east and the north will all fight. In the midst of the end of the war, Jesus Christ will return, and he will end it all. End all the rebellion and claim his kingdom. You ready for that? So what's happening in heaven? What are you and I doing while God's pouring out his seven-year tribulational wrath on earth? Well, two events. First, the judgment seat of Christ for reward. The judgment seat of Christ for reward. All your sin, all of it, past, present, and future, if you're a believer, you're born again, was punished on Jesus Christ on your behalf. Can I hear an amen to that? All of it. There isn't one thing, and yet you will still, and I will still, give answer to our lives. We will still be evaluated for our lives. Not for our sin, but for how we lived our life. It says in Romans chapter 14, verse 10 and 12, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And all means all. That's right. And each one of us, verse 12, will give an account of himself to God. We all will. Every single one of us. You say, what will, be that, what will, what will that be like? Well, Second Corinthians 5.10 tells you, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. According to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, look carefully at like that. Let me divide that up for you and look at every phrase. Pick it apart. You can do this in your own study. We must. That means you must. It means it's necessary. This is not an option. You are going to do that. There's no escape room. There's no way that you can dodge out of this. There's no, you know how you go to Disneyland and there's like that last door before you have to go on the big ride? Remember that? There's no last door, friends. You will face Christ. You will. And each one of you, it says, individually, you will stand for reward evaluation before Christ. Recompense means you're going to be paid back, that what you do in this life matters and you will be rewarded for what you will do in this life. But what are you rewarded for? Deeds, not intentions. Not what you hope to do, but what you actually did. You say, well, how do you know? He says, in the body, right now, in this life matters. Why you're in this physical body right now matters for eternity. And it says then, whether bad or good, that's useless or useful. You know, I worry. I worry about believers who don't serve, who don't give, who don't disciple, who don't teach, who don't shepherd, who don't do anything, because you are evaluated for what you do in this life. You and I will stand before Christ, and he will evaluate our lives to see what we did that was rewardable. We're not talking about earning your salvation at all. That is a free gift from God. We're talking about demonstrating that you have salvation. Faith without works is? Faith without deeds is dead. Where's your heart? Where are your, where are your works? You say, well, what makes a work useful and you or useless? A good or bad deed? Well, 1 Corinthians 4 or 5 describes that for us. Wait, he says, until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness. Now listen. And disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Motive is everything. It is what you do. But it's also very important that you know it's why you do what you do. It's who you did it for and whose strength you did it. The deeds done for the glory of God in the power of the Holy Spirit as you depend on Him and He works through you are useful. They are rewardable. And it's all kinds of deeds. Every kind of deed. In the Spirit for His glory. Even the maintenance of regular everyday living is rewardable if it's done for the glory of God and in the power of the Spirit. But things like service, giving, helps, teaching, Preaching and more, deeds that are done for our glory, things that are done in our strength, not the strength of the Spirit, the flesh, those are useless. Those are not rewardable. Because during the tribulation, the saints in heaven will face the judgment seat of Christ. And secondly, we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. Are you excited? Food in heaven! Come on, people. It's going to have extra gluten. It's going to have extra dairy, extra sugar, and it's all going to be really, really good for you. Oh, I can hardly wait. Revelation 19, 7-9. After the judgment seat of Christ in heaven, the church, the bride of Christ will be saying this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and clean, For the fine linen, what is it? It's the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. The only people who will be allowed into this banquet are the ones who have the white robe of Christ's righteousness. You say, how do I get that robe? Very simply. Your sin falls on Christ by faith. He covers you in his righteousness and you are justified. If you try to enter into His presence and you have not had the righteousness of Christ cover you, then you are not a child of God. You will not be in the marriage supper of the Lamb. It must be that you're justified. And when you're justified, you're regenerated, which means you want to obey Him. You want to follow Him because you have a new transformed heart. You want to serve Him. You want to give to Him. All those are true. This text is describing a celebration of God's elect. The event is what our hearts have been crying for and longing for dressed in Christ's perfect righteousness, and decorated the deeds of service which were done for God's glory and in the strength of the Spirit at this massive celebration, all genuine born-again saints. What's going to happen? We are going to be one with Christ forever and one with each other. Does that blow you away? Listen, you will actually like the people sitting next to you right now. You might have had an argument before you came here. When you were in your glorified body, that ain't going to happen. You're going to love every single element of those people all around you. They are no longer going to be sinners. They are going to be the perfect version of themselves. Can I hear an amen to that? We're looking forward to that day. It's going to be awesome. One with Christ and one with each other. Now back to earth. You say, what's happening at this point? What's happening? What's life like during the tribulation? Regular life. Will there be religion practiced during the tribulation? Well, yes. Chapter 17 tells you what the religion will be like. And if you recall, the church is called a bride. So if you call the church a bride, what do you call the false church? A harlot. A harlot. The harlot rides the Antichrist. The false church, false religion, rides the Antichrist to power. The Antichrist is going to be a religious guy, riding religion to power. And the Antichrist will then overthrow that religion halfway through the tribulation. But he sets himself up then as the only God because he's consumed with power, he's consumed with pride, and he's driven by the enemy himself, which means I want the world to worship him. Satan. You say, what's the religion? It could be some form of Islam. It could be some form of Catholicism. It could be some manipulated, warped view of Christianity. We're not sure, but it's going to be religion, and the world's going to buy into it. They're going to buy into it. And it's at this point, the false prophet, then what he does is he sets up that image that we just read about. He makes it come to life, doing various miracles, so that after that, then the Antichrist sets himself up as God, so no other religion at this point is even tolerated. He overthrows the religion. He rides to power, and he sets himself up as God. That's at the midpoint. So what else is happening in the secular, tribulational world? What's the economy like Uh, during the tribulation? Well, chapter 18 answers that question of business and commerce. When everything starts to collapse, verse 2 tells us, as demons have taken over the world, all the nations are saddened. They're saddened. You say, why are they saddened? Because all the banks, all the economies, all the governments all collapse, and nobody cares about buying any products anymore. You say, why don't they care about buying anything anymore? Because all they're concerned about is one thing. Are you ready? Survival. It is so bad at the end. All they care about is living. It's so sad. Aren't you sad for the world at that time? No one goes to the mall anymore. Wow, no sales rack, no Nordstrom, second-handers, no bargains, no BOGO, no blue light specials. See what happened to Kmart? Come on, look at verse 11. The merchants of the earth are weeping, all these sad merchants. Why are they weeping? They're mourning over her. Why? Because no one buys their cargoes anymore. No buying, no selling, no sales. Every national economy has fallen apart. So how does this prophetic week then, this tribulation, flow chronologically? We'll understand, the tribulation begins with the rapture. It begins with the rapture. That means when the tribulation starts, there are no believers on earth, say, maybe the two witnesses. The Antichrist signs a peace treaty right at the beginning, and that's with Israel. And Daniel 9, 27 talks about it. Again, Incredible parallelism. We're just letting the Bible speak for itself. It harmonizes both Old and New Testament. And what you find in Daniel 9, 27 are these words. He, the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. He sets himself up as God. That's what he's saying. And that's exactly what the New Testament teaches. Then the seal judgments, the ministry of the two witnesses, the harlot religion, all in that first three and a half years. And then the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist sets himself up as God, overthrows the harlot religion, and then God will then cast Satan and demons out of heaven. And everything then begins to really accelerate. In the second three and a half years, you have the trumpet judgments, the sealing of the 144,000. You have a massive evangelistic Uh, incredible campaign and evangelism. People are coming to Christ right and left. Intense persecution. People are dying right and left. There's persecution of the Jewish nation in an incredible way. Finally, the bold judgments, and then it all wraps up with the wars of Armageddon intensify, and then heaven gets really happy. Say, what are you talking about? They get really joyful. Something great's happening in heaven. Look at chapter 18, verse 20. Take a look at chapter 18, verse 20. You will see that heaven is rejoicing. See, what are they rejoicing over? Because even though the party is over on earth, the party is just starting in heaven. You take a look at it, it says 19, verse 1. Chapter 19, verse 1, it says, Hallelujah. And then verse 3, Hallelujah. And then verse 4, Hallelujah. And then verse 6, all, Hallelujah. Look at verse 6. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty, He what? He reigns. He's ruling. What are they so happy about? Our God reigns. He's ruling. He's about to establish his rule. He's in charge. He is Lord. He's sovereign over everything. This has all been his plan, all been his will. What is it going to look like? For the answer to that, you have to come back next time. Take this home. Number one in your outline, would you celebrate the heart of God by proclaiming the gospel? Celebrate the heart of God by proclaiming the gospel. Uh, turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter nine, 7, verse 9. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Our God is so merciful, even as he's pouring out his wrath on humanity, as he's pouring down righteous judgment on humanity, he's also evangelizing. He's also saving. You've got two witnesses. You've got 144,000. Then you have multitudes. So many. Look what he says in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, how many there are. He says this, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could, what? They couldn't even count it. From every nation and all tribes and all people and all tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in the white righteous robes. Right now, we've learned from Revelation, we've learned from Second Peter chapter 3 that God is delaying judgment as he's waiting for his elect to come to salvation, his chosen to respond in repentance and faith. He saves sinners. Listen, I don't care how badly you've sinned. I don't care how messed up your life is. Jesus Christ, He died for sinners such as you. There are people all around you, I guarantee you, that have sinned far worse than you ever have. And the only way you'll ever be forgiven is to put your life in His hands and to be covered in His righteousness and then be born again so that He gives you a new heart that you could follow Him. But the only way... Friends, is for us to share that message. They're only going to hear it from a preacher, and you're the preacher. Your lost relatives, your lost friends, you're the preacher. So much better to offend them now than to, for them to go through the tribulation and hell forever. Number two, prepare for the Bema judgment by serving now. You and I are going to be evaluated, and the Savior knows every motive behind every action. So get yourself in a place where you're serving. Get yourself in a place where you're giving faithfully, regularly, sacrificially. Get yourself in a place where you're faithful and regular to serve Him away, And then ask the Lord you might serve Him for His glory and in His strength by His Spirit. So you don't end up like the losser. I call Him the losser in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. It says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He's the losser, not a loser, a losser. But he himself will be saved, yet is through fire. Don't find yourself evaluated with nothing to show for your life. Be one who serves faithfully now that your life is about Christ, that you look for opportunities to put Him on display. You look for opportunities to fulfill your role within the context of the body of Christ. You look for ways to give in order to establish His purposes on this planet. Number three, fight your spiritual warfare daily with your army. With your army. Turn, if you would, please turn there to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. You have a hateful enemy who oversees a vast army. He has a vast army at his disposal. And for you to stand strong against this army. Listen, some of us, when we think about spiritual warfare and we think about the armor of God, we think about me versus Satan. We think about me versus a demon. That is not what the scripture describes. The scripture describes the enemy as an army. An army, a plural army of hateful enemies. And that we, as the army of God, the church of Jesus Christ, are opposed to that army. It's army against army. Do you understand that? You fight as an army. Most believers don't realize that your battle is not you against his army. It is you and God's army against the enemy's armies. Take a look at Ephesians 6.10. It says, finally, and that is you all, it's plural, you all be strong in the strength of his might in the Lord. And then verse 11, you all, all of you, plural, put on the full armor of God. You together put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, plural, against powers, plural, against the world forces, plural, of this darkness, against the spiritual forces, plural, of wickedness and heavenly places. It is you together put on the armor of God in order to fight, plural, the enemy's army. We are a part of an army, In our individualistic culture, we think of ourselves as me battling the enemy. Yes, you do, but you do so together. Do we not need each other in this war? Yes or no? Yes, we do. And you need to stand firm in an interconnected way. One another's intimate relationship, praying for one another, supporting each other within the context of the local church to actually be prepared for spiritual battle. The exhortation is to us as the church, not to you as a Christian, you fight together. And listen, if you try to stand alone, you're going to get killed. And when things get really rough as they're progressing, as there comes persecution, you will need to be interconnected to the local church or you will not survive. Let's fight together. Let's do these battles together. Let's stand firm for Jesus Christ. And number four, be certain of your assurance of salvation. Would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, please? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, if you would, please turn there, and understand that you need to make certain that you're a part of the bride of Christ. That you need to make certain that you are dressed in the white righteousness of Christ. That you're that you're not, you know, trying to do this religiously. That you prayed a prayer once, you walked an aisle once, and you accepted Jesus once. But there's no manifestation of Christ through you. There's no changed heart. You don't follow him. You don't obey his word because you want to. You just kind of put on a little bit of religious jag. Listen, those works are going to burn. Those are like filthy rags before a holy God. Look what he says in Second Corinthians 13.5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the, What? In the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves. That Jesus Christ is what? That's the test. Is Jesus Christ in you? Because if he's in you. He will show through you. He will. He will manifest himself. He will display himself. And your works will be then. His works through you. You're seeking to glorify him. It will be he glorifying himself through you. It'll be Him bringing Himself glory through you. Make sure you're certain of your calling. Make certain that you are truly in Christ. That you have been transformed. That Christ is your life. Even when you fail. Even when you're miserable. Even when you've blown it. You say, I want to follow Jesus Christ. That's the heart of a Christian. And it begins to manifest through their lives. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take your word and that you would call some to yourself, that you would begin to work in their heart to show them that they desperately need to turn to you, that they would rely upon you for salvation alone, that it wouldn't be their works or their show or their history or whatever's happened in the past, but it would be currently, right now, that Christ is manifested in and through them. And Father, for the rest of us, may we revel in your grace that you've protected us from this wrath to come, that we may rejoice in what you've given us, And that you have given us not only new life now, but eternal life forever. And that we would walk as holy people. That we would walk unashamed that if you came right at this moment, we would not be ashamed in how we lived. And Father, that we would be those kind of people who are anticipating your coming every day. Longing for it, but seeking to be faithful and impactful on this planet for your glory. We pray, Father, now as we sing, as we conclude, that you would be pleased with our worship, which is more than just our song. It is our very lives offered to you. And we pray, Father, that that would be worthy of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.